country man says it's the end of time And the Mississippi River, she's a gold dry The interest is up and the stock market's down And you're only getting mugged if you go downtown Got a shotgun, a rifle, and a four-wheel drive. Friends, this is Bob Main with another episode of today's Survival Show, helping you harness the power of choice to live life the way you want to live it on your own terms and strengthen your resolve. And as Teddy Roosevelt once said, do what you can with what you have wherever you are. Thanks for listening. This is episode number 69 of today's survival show. And if you are a first-time listener, I promise you something. You are going to hear a voice of reason on this show. You're not going to hear a lot of paranoia or crazy-type thinking like that. We get into basic common sense. We talk about what works. We talk about how to live a better life now. I really think that's what it's all about. How to live a better life today. How to thrive today so that you can survive tomorrow. So that you get benefits from what you do today. And if some kind of an emergency strikes or some kind of a disaster happens, then you can come come at it with a position of strength. You can respond from a position of strength. That's what I'm trying to say here. So I hope that you'll find this to be a practical show. And the main topic of today's show is going to be first aid. Once again, I have a member of our forum that I am going to interview, and uh, I'm going to bring Chris Harper, also known as Ghost Rider, on our forum. He is an EMT. Uh, He is a first aid expert. He's got some excellent ideas. I've asked him to do a brief review of the previous episode where I had him on this show, and then I've asked him to get into some other Uh, areas which uh, are things like wound management what if you cut yourself what if you have a broken bone uh, gunshot wounds and things like that we all need to know first aid folks and some of you might be thinking you know I need to build a first aid kit Uh, I kinda have the mindset that I like homemade first aid kits better I have asked Chris to talk about homemade first aid kits versus store-bought kits as well so I'm going to pretty much leave it at that. That's going to be the topic, uh, and I'm going to bring him on here in just a minute. I want to make a couple of announcements first. You know, I like to do these interviews, folks, and if you have uh, an expertise, if you have an area that you feel like you're an expert on and you want to come on the show, I would love to schedule an interview with you, just like the one that you're going to hear today. Uh, Don't worry. I'll give you the softball questions, okay? But... This should be a listener-based show, a community-based show. I want this to be your podcast. I don't want you to just always be hearing from me. So with that, with that said, uh, send me an email. Uh, send, you know, put a comment on the blog if you want to be on the show, whatever, and, uh, and we'll make it happen. The other announcement is our forum is getting very close to 400 members. If you have not become a member of our forum yet, get on there. There's some really good like-minded people that are on that forum that want to talk to you about how to live a more secure life, and that's really what we're all about. And the last announcement that I want to make... I've set a target date for March 1st to bring the Survival Activist Club back. A little bit of a delay uh, because I'm trying to nail down a couple of sponsors with some donations and things like that. And I've had another special guest that wants to chime in on the, the Survival Activist Club. So I'm waiting to be able to set that up. So I'm going to leave it at that, but March 1st, folks, it is coming back. I'm going to have a nice prize again for the winner of the people that participate in the Survival Activist Club. And if you don't know what that is, go to the forum and check it out. There's a big posting on there. There's also a posting under SAC Club on the main blog. Okay, that's the end of the announcements and enough of me talking. Let's go ahead and start the interview. Okay, uh, we are back with Chris Harper, also known as Ghost Rider, on today's Survival Show Forum. How you doing, Chris? Good. How are you, Bob? Good. Thanks for coming back on the show a second time. And we had some requests to bring Chris back on, first of all, because uh, some folks had a hard time hearing it, but also some folks said they wanted to hear more from him. And I really enjoyed the last show that you, the last interview you did. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks for having me. It was fun. I enjoyed it. Good. What I'd like you to do uh, for the listeners, if you wouldn't mind doing a brief review of 
what we should have in our first aid kits, what we should pack them in, a basic home first aid kit, an automobile first aid kit, and then I've also asked Chris to talk about wound management, what to do if you're wounded, if you're cut, uh, if you break something. Uh, Chris is an EMT, I, I got that right? That's correct. Yeah. Okay, and so I'm going to let him take it away. Why don't, you, why don't you get started with giving us your thoughts and your ideas on home first aid kits and vehicle first aid kits. Okay. Um, Last time we spoke, um, we started out talking about what to put in your kit. So this time, let's kind of reverse that a little bit and start out first by saying what to put your kit in. Um, let's start yes. With container. Yes. Um, now, containers can come in any form. Um, as you said, you used um, freezer bags, Ziploc freezer bags. Yes, I like to use those two-gallon Ziploc freezer bags. Those work great. Um, I've worked, I've, I usually use like a one-gallon size um, Sometimes a two-gallon, depending on, you know, what I want to stuff in there. But your basic freezer bag is, is an awesome thing to use. It's cheap, readily available, and they come in different sizes, quart size, gallon size, two-gallon, so on. Yeah. But, so your freezer bags are one thing. Another good thing is like a tackle box or a toolbox. Um, Home Depot, mm -hmm. Lowe's, any of your hardware stores sells general cheap toolboxes, little plastic toolboxes, and a lot of them have compartments in them. So you can compartmentalize your various first aid items into your kit. If you didn't want to do a tackle box or a toolbox type, you can go for the a medic bag. Um, mm -hmm. You see there's literally hundreds on the market of different types of medical bags, you know, from something small, medium, large, and, and so on. Yeah. Possibilities, possibilities for a container is really endless, and it's, you know, up to you of what you want to put it in and how you see fit. So like a, a home first aid kit, most of my first aid kits at home are in like a medical bag. Um, okay. Because I'm in the medical field and that was, I've always had those. So, And then in a vehicle type kit, what I'll use is something more rigid, something more along the lines of the tackle box or the toolbox. That's what I was wondering. So you like to use tackle boxes for the vehicle? Yeah, just something, it's, it's more rigid. Um, so therefore, if it's rolling around in you know the trunk of your car, your contents aren't going to spill out everywhere. Yeah, I like what you said about compartmentalizing it. How would you do that? What would you put in what compartment? Well, that that kind of varies person to person. What I like to do is break it down. When I organize my stuff, I like to break it down from like your your basic band aids um, go in kind of one little compartment. Right. And um, you go over to your bandages. Some sort of like uh, your 4x4 four four bandages or 2x2 two two bandages. Um, stuff like that kind of goes into another compartment. And then, depending on how many compartments you have, um, you can add stuff like um, ACE bandages or okay. know, what's called clean conforming bandages. It's like a, it's roller gauze. Um, and then, as you have more compartments, um, you put in your some alcohol wipes or alcohol pads or sure. iodine or peroxide, neosporin in various compartments, tape, um, medication, or your um, your butterfly closures or steri strips. So it just gets to where it's, when you open the kit up, you look and you say, okay, here's my Band-Aid. You don't have to really go fumbling through a bunch of stuff and, and, and looking for Band-Aids. You, you know it's right there. As soon as you open it up, that's the first thing you grab or, or however you have it set up. Yeah, and it sounds like what you're describing now is a lot of the basics, uh, the must-haves for a kit, right? Correct. Yeah, your must-haves. Um, basic Band-Aids. Uh, Band-Aids come in different sizes, um, stuff from little small one by three, I think is about the standard um, bandage is a one-inch by three-inch. Right. Uh, it's standard. Uh, then you have knuckle bandages, fingertip bandages, uh, large um, you know, some of them are called knee bandages. They're just kind of a large bandage. Um, I just have various sizes because it, you never know what size cut or scrape you're going to get. You know, it could be something small to something large. So, sure. Various size bandages are your basic thing. Then you okay. Have, then you have like butterfly closures. It's what they're called. Um, I'm sure a lot of people have seen them. They they basically are just a, a little piece of tape, and if you look at it, it kind of looks like an H. 
Um, yes. It has like a little, has like a little bridge, um, and the little bridge is what covers the wound, basically. Yeah, and there are many different sizes. Many different sizes of those, and some in the medical field, they're called Steri strips, and they're almost the right. same thing. So I have some of those. Um, four by four gauze, like I talked about before, or two by twos. Um, ace bandages, clean okay. conforming bandage, um, neosporin or triple antibiotic ointment. It's basically the same thing. Somebody was asking me about that the other day. Yeah, uh, it, we talked about thing. that last time. Peroxide, iodine, either one of those for you're cleaning your wounds. Okay. What else we have? Medications. Uh, we talked about medications last time. Tylenol, yes, we did. Ibuprofen. Something for an upset stomach, like an antacid, Zantac, or Mylanta. That sort of thing. Benadryl for allergies. Right. Uh, tape. Tape is something good to have. Yeah, talk about tape. What kind of tape do you typically recommend for, because I was wondering that the other day. I was, you know, refining some of the materials in my first aid kit and kind of taking some stuff out and putting others in. What kind of tape do you recommend? Really, it, that, that's kind of open. Um, duct tape, generally. I mean, honestly, everybody carries duct tape in, in some sort or another, mm -hmm. so why not throw it in your first aid kit? Sure. You know, it's, it works. Um, Makes sense. And then there's electrical tape, and then there's your general purpose medical tape. Um, the medical tape is not going to um, stick to your skin near as well as the duct tape, which is good in one sense, because if you've ever put duct tape on your arm, it generally rips the hair off when it comes with it. But That's exactly right. So medical tape um, would probably be a little bit better, but if that's all you have is duct tape or electrical tape, that's fine too. Now use that. Okay. okay. Somebody somebody asked, uh, somebody sent me an email, and they wanted to get my ideas or somebody from the forum's ideas on the differences between a first aid kit for the house and a first aid kit for the vehicle. What are your thoughts on that? I would say they're pretty much the same thing. You would? Uh, okay. Other than the container, you know, that you would put it in, or you could use the same container. Um one thing that you might not put in your your home first or your vehicle first aid kit that you would your home first aid kit, which I think we missed out on on the last one, is a thermometer. Ah, uh -huh. yeah, we didn't talk about that. Yeah, a lot of people don't think about a thermometer. They have there's so many different thermometers out there. A good oral thermometer is is one I would recommend. And now there I've seen um, here recently a lot of the um, they look like strips of tape that go on your forehead. Yeah, we we didn't talk about the thermometers. So thanks for adding that. And I said that's that's really they're basically about the same. Um, I don't know that there's too many different things that I would put um, into my home kit that I wouldn't my my vehicle kit. But other than maybe some of the different medications that I would keep here at the house, other than you know my vehicle, okay, pretty much the same. Let me ask you another question about the vehicle kit. You know, we all live in different climates. I live in Texas. You live in Georgia. A lot of folks are listening to the show that live up north, and it's pretty cold up there right now. Is there anything that you would or would not have, depending on the season or the time of the year? Um, yes and no. Um, you really have to keep your kits rotated out, as as you would with any of your like food storage or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. You need to check your kits often especially for stuff like neosporin um, or peroxide, stuff that has expiration dates. You want to, you know, keep those and rotate those out. Also, I know down here in the south, since it's very humid um, and hot, and I'm sure it is out in Texas in the summertime, I've, I've had neosporin kind of explode in a bag. It, it just got so <laughs> hot in the little tube, it just exploded. I was wondering about that. Yeah, it, so if you don't keep it inside of like a, another small little Ziploc baggie in itself, it can tend to explode on you. That's something to remember. Um, okay, good. Thanks for that info on on the first aid kits. Uh, I'm really interested in, in talking to you about wound management, what to do if you're hurt. Well, there's, there's different things you can do. Most of the time, if we're out in the field, you know, whether hiking or just around the house, generally... Most of the time, it's going to be a cut. You're going to get some type of a cut. 
generally. Right. Um, right. Whether it, you know, be from a knife or, or whatnot, it, it's going to be your basic you know, cut. And with cut, depending on what you get cut with, um, what you want to do is, is clean that wound out um, with, with whatever you have available. Like, for example, what? Give us a suggestion on what to clean it with. But I, I talked about in, in the first video or first podcast um, with peroxide, there's been some some talk about peroxide and, and cleaning wounds uh, now by doctors. That it says it damages your skin tissues and whatnot. Basically, I what heard you about that. Do, what you want to do with peroxide is, is dilute it. Just dilute it in some water and clean out your wound. You want to clean okay. that wound really well, even if you think it's just a small little, you know, cut and don't think nothing about it. Clean it really well. Irrigate it really well. Once you've cleaned it, just kind of dab it dry. If, if, if once you've controlled the bleeding and you uh, clean the wound, you just want to kind of dab it dry, and then you can put some. If it's a small wound, you can put some neosporin on it. Okay. And then put your basic bandage on it. Now the okay. problem comes in. It's when you get a deeper wound or a, or a longer wound and, and it's bleeding and it, it just kind of won't stop. Right. I'm sure that's a whole different protocol. Yeah. The first thing you want to do with, with that type of wound where it's just bleeding is put pressure on it immediately. Um, right. Say you've, um, you've gashed your arm pretty bad and you've got a good you know three inch long cut on your arm and you think it's pretty deep and it's just bleeding non-stop and you really don't have anything right right then and there just put your hand over it and just apply pressure with your hand right apply pressure with your hand because that's all you have at that point in time um, until you can get to your first aid kit and once you okay. get there you can get out have the four by four gauze bandages and get out some four by fours and put those on that wound because you want to stop that bleeding and pressure is generally the first thing you're going to do to stop the bleeding pressure is the most important pressure is the most important thing yeah and you cover it and apply pressure if that doesn't work then you'll apply more dressings more like four by fours or more you know type of dressing that you have and then you want to do what's called a pressure dressing where you can use your ace bandage and just start wrapping it around that particular wound. Like I'll use your arm again as an example because it's kind of a easy thing to use. And mm -hmm. just wrap that ace bandage around just kind of tight, not real, real tight, but you just want to put apply a little bit more pressure to it. So once you've done that, if the wound is still bleeding, elevate your arm or elevate mm -hmm. the extremity above your heart. That's going to slow the blood flow down. Right. And if that doesn't work, then you're going to have to resort to pressure points of some sort. Um, say, for instance, there again, if the wound is on your arm, there's a pressure point in your upper arm. Um, okay, where is that pressure point? It's that, <clears throat> if you, uh, at your upper arm, yeah. on the inside of your upper arm, um, there's an artery that runs through there. It's called the brachial artery. Okay. And uh, kind of right in the middle, uh, kind of runs right in the middle of your arm. And if you just push right there, um, it will generally you'll generally slow the bleeding down. Now, Chris, are you talking about are you talking about near the elbow or up closer to the armpit? Up, kind of in the middle of your arm, between your elbow and your armpit. Okay. Kind of right yeah. In the in, there. On the inside of the arm. That's the brachial yeah. artery. Mm-hmm. Okay. Break your artery runs kind of like right under your bicep, uh, right okay. there, and you just apply pressure. Hopefully, at this point, um, if it's that gotten that bad, you're either on your way to the hospital or maybe somebody's called nine one one for you, right? Or something like that. I hope so. So, uh, hopefully, like I said, they won't get to that point. Usually, nine times out of ten, you can control uh, the bleeding from pressure, and then just adding the pressure type dressing to it and that will slow the bleeding down, if not stop it. Okay. Unless you hit an artery, and then that's, you need to get to the hospital rather quickly if you hit an artery because the bleeding's not going to stop within a couple of minutes. And pressure's probably not going to, you know, the pressure that uh, a normal person could probably apply is not going to be enough, right? No, it's, it's not going to be enough. When people see blood, there's different types of, of blood. 
depending on what you cut, you, the blood will turn different colors and do different things. Say, for instance, um, you just prick your finger, um, just a you know, little needle prick on your finger or whatever. That blood is generally just kind of kind of ooze, you know, just oozes a little bit, doesn't really flow, it just kind of oozes. Mm-hmm. That's generally a capillary type of a, a bleeding. And then you have, for a deeper wound, if you end up cutting like a vein mm-hmm. or something like that, the blood is going to be like a, a darker red, uh, generally, and it's just going to kind of flow. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, if you cut an artery, uh, the blood will be just shooting and, and just spurting out everywhere. And that's pretty serious. That's real serious. Um, you'll, you'll know if you cut an artery. It'll literally shoot across the room. Um, it's, if you've never seen something like that, it will definitely scare you. Actually, I'd have to admit that I haven't. Yeah, and hopefully nobody ever will. Cause it, and you can die rather quick um, like that because... You know, your arteries have a lot of pressure in them. There's a lot of blood flowing through there. So if you don't get that bleeding control rather quick, you will die soon. Just curious question about that. How much how much time do you think there normally is? Um, a few minutes. Uh, I would say in ten minutes. Um, if okay. You hit a good, if you hit a good artery like your femoral artery, uh, which mm-hmm. is your leg, mm-hmm. um, if you were to cut that, say chainsawing, um, I've seen that before. Um, Somebody using a chainsaw, and it, they cut on through that log and right into their leg. Oh man! And end, up, end up cutting that artery. It's um, you end up bleeding out rather quick. Um, so you just have to stop that bleeding. And that's that's the main thing is get that bleeding stopped by whatever means necessary. Since we're talking about severe bleeding, I really didn't want to touch on it, but I know somebody's going to ask about tourniquet. Um, yes, I was going to ask you about that anyway. Um, a tourniquet is a last resort type of a thing. Um, really, you would only use a tourniquet if you're out in the woods hiking or camping and maybe you hit that artery or you just cannot get that bleeding to stop. You would use that tourniquet. Okay. Because with a tourniquet, it's it, the same principle as pressure. What you're trying to do is slow down that bleeding. But you can apply the tourniquet too tight and not a let. You still have to let blood flow through. But you can apply a tourniquet so tight that it ends up damaging all the nerves and everything inside that particular extremity. Well, I was wondering about that. I was wondering what would happen if you crank that thing too tight. That's, that's eventually what will happen. It's not going to happen immediately. I mean, if you, you know, crank, like you said, crank down on that tourniquet and just left it for an hour or two going to slow the bleeding down if not stop it but you've also done probably done damage uh, to that particular extremity in the long and so that's not something you want to do but in a last resort type of situation you know you can use the tourniquet to slow the bleeding down but just make sure that you're allowing some blood flow through there because you don't want to completely damage that extremity or whatever but if it's a matter of life or death you may not have a choice Exactly right. Uh, you know, it, like I said there again, if you're out, you know, backpacking and you're, you know, miles and miles away from civilization, you know, or a hospital or anything, it's a matter of life and death. You have to do what you have to do because, you know, ultimately, you know, you can live without an extremity, but if you die, then just because you didn't want to put that tourniquet on, I don't think your family will be too happy. No, I don't think they'd be uh, too happy about that. And I, I'm glad you brought that up. I was going to ask you about tourniquets. I generally, in my home first aid kit, I have a, um, a military-type tourniquet um, that they're issuing to the military that, there again, it's just there as a last resort type of a, a thing. And that's, that's the only reason it's there. I want to ask you something about what happens if you, if you break an extremity. But before I get into that, I don't want to forget to ask you. I want to back up about 10 minutes or so. Um, 10 minutes ago, you mentioned diluting the peroxide. Mm-hmm. Um, I had it written down here in my notes. What if you dilute it? What kind of mixture would you say? How many parts peroxide? How much water? Um, it really varies on how much you need um, for okay. a particular wound. If you've got just a you know a small wound, uh, you know maybe a cap full or two, 
um, of peroxide per like a, a cup of water. So I don't know what would that ratio be. Yeah, well, whatever. Yeah, that's but that's easy to figure out. A cup, a cup of water, a cap full of peroxide. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. You you, you don't want it so strong. You don't you don't want to dump it on there at full strength. So any type of dilution you, know, you use. Same thing with the iodine. If you have iodine, you want to dilute it too. With the iodine, it's okay. a little bit easier to tell because you want it to kind of look like a um, almost like a, an apple juice. Apple juice. Uh, it's kind of it's not real dark brown, not a light brown. That's kind of what you want it to look like if you use iodine. So that's the color you want to make your iodine, kind of like iced tea color. Correct. Yeah, like a, a lighter because iodine is um, is a real dark brown. So just dilute it to look like a lighter color. Okay. All right. Sorry to sidetrack you there, Chris, but I, I had that written in my notes. Um, okay. Let's talk about breaking extremities. What What do you suggest if? You, let's start with breaking your arm. Um, there's a little, um, I don't know, acronym, um, there's acronyms for everything now, but a little acronym that I've learned over the years and that I teach in classes is, it's called RICE, um, just like the rice that you eat, R-I-C-E. R-I-C-E, okay. And that's, and that's really used for sprains, but we're going to call it, it kind of, sprain kind of goes into a break. And basically okay. the R, R stands for rest. Any type you, anytime you break something or get a sprain, um, you want to rest. Okay. Um, the I stands for ice. So again, anytime you sprain something or break something, you want to apply ice to it. Ice um, um, slows down the swelling, okay. and it offers you some pain relief. Now, if you've got a break, obviously it's not going to offer a lot of pain relief, but it will offer some pain relief because it starts to kind of numb some of the nerves for you. C stands for compression. Now this is kind of more to do with sprains again. Um, compression, you want to apply the ACE bandage. That's the purpose, or, uh, another purpose of having that ACE bandage in your first aid kit is to apply some compression. Because most of the time, the sprain is going to be on the ankle. You roll the ankle by walking or whatnot. Mm -hmm. You wrap that ACE bandage around your ankle fairly tight just to kind of compress it and that's going to kind of keep the swelling down as well. So that's what that's for. That's for helping to keep the swelling down as well. Yes. And it, okay. it immobilizes it and tries to keep the swelling down. Okay. I never knew what they, why they would wrap them tight like that. Learn something every every time. Okay. And then, and then the E stands for elevation. And there again for sprains. You just want to elevate it to kind of keep the swelling down. Because if anybody's ever sprained their ankle and then broken something, nine times out of ten, they're going to say that sprain hurts way more than what that broken extremity did. Oh, yes. It just kind of throbs. You know, there's really nothing you can do for it. I mean, you can take pain medication, but it's still going to just throb from that just blood flow in there, just making it swell. Yeah, I like this. Okay, RICE, R-I-C-E, rest, ice, compression, and elevation. Okay. That's right. And like I said, that, that pertains more to kind of a sprain type of an injury. You know, you roll your ankle. Breaking something. If you break your leg or break your arm, what do you want to do? What you want to do with that is arm fractures are, are fairly common. There again, we'll use the arm since it's an easy thing to do. Right. Um, what you want to do is immobilize it with whatever you have. Um, you can use, if you're at home, you can wrap a pillow around that arm and tape it up, or you can um, use some type of um, wood. If you have some one by fours or one by twos, make uh, a splint like out of it. Yeah, just make a splint, and you're just trying to immobilize that extremity. And since, for example, we'll use the lower arm because uh, that's what a lot of people break. I mean, you can break your yeah. upper arm, but it's just not as common as, like, the lower arm. Like your forearm? Yeah. So if you break your forearm, per se, immobilize that extremity with, with whatever you have. Um, magazines, a pillow, like I said, um, some wood, splint mm -hmm. is what you want to do. But you also want to splint the upper arm as well. Or you want to completely immobilize that extremity. The entire arm. The entire arm. So, if you've broken your forearm, what you want to do is put it into like a sling, 
um, and kind of pull it up against your chest. And just that way you've immobilized the upper arm into that sling as well as you've applied a splint to the lower arm where it's fractured at or broken. And you've kind of immobilized that entire extremity. Okay. Now, can I stop you right there for a minute? Yep. I think I know the obvious answer, but I'm going to ask the question for the benefit of the listeners anyway. What's the purpose of immediately immobilizing it? So you don't do any further damage. You don't want to do any further damage um, to the extremity. And immobilizing it also relieves some of the pain. Okay, so that's what I was wondering. It will, it will alleviate some of the pain. It's going to hurt like the dickens. I mean, it's, unfortunately, I can knock on wood and say that I have never broken a bone. You know, knock on wood. Uh, Neither have I. Being in the medical field for so many years, I've seen hundreds, if not thousands, of them, and I know that they hurt pretty bad. I have never broken one either. I've I've torn lots of ligaments and muscles, but never broke a bone. Me too. Exactly. <laughs> um, I hope I never break one, but I mean, I've sprained my ankles and stuff like that, but I've, I've never broken a bone. Let's just say it's definitely not on my bucket list. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, since we, you know, we're talking about the arm, uh, splinting the arm, and, and getting it immobilized and splinted, there's another thing you want to do. Um, it, once you splint the extremity, mm-hmm. you don't want to apply that splint too tight. Um, you can look at, um, since we're using the arm, for example, you can look at the person's hands and kind of what you want to do before you splint it, just like kind of got ahead should have talked about this before, but before you splint the extremity, you want to check for a pulse. The way you check for a pulse in, in, in the lower arm or the forearm area is if you hold your hand out, palm up, and got your thumb, and running along, right along your thumb, mm-hmm. in your forearm area, that's called your radius. There's a, that bone right there is called your radius. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side of your hand, that other bone in your arm is called the ulna. And right there in between those two bones is an artery called the radial artery. And there's a pulse right there. Just behind the wrist, right? Yeah. You can feel your heartbeat right there. And what you want to do to how to check that is use your first two fingers, not your thumb, because your thumb has a heartbeat of its own. So use your first two fingers and just kind of put gentle pressure right along your wrist area um, just down below your thumb, and you you should find a pulse, hopefully. Um, yeah, I found mine, so I'm still alive. Okay, good. that's a good thing. Yeah, that's, that's a good a, thing, yeah. That's a good thing. That's what you want to do broken their arm. Um, you want to find that, that pulse to make sure that there is a pulse still there because a lot of times what can happen with breaks is that break, that bone has gets to where it impedes that artery. It, can it impedes the blood flow, right? Impede, yeah, correct. It impedes the blood flow to the artery, and therefore that's a bad thing because there's no blood flow now going past that breakage. Worst case scenario is now you come to where you might lose your arm you know, your, or your hand because there's no blood flow there. So if you can't get to a hospital quickly, it, it's kind of like the tourniquet thing. Now you, you, know, you, you may stand a chance on now losing your, your hand. Okay, and that's not your doing. I mean, you can't help it that you broke your arm or whatever. So just check for a pulse. Make sure that there's a pulse there. Another thing you check for is called capillary refill time. Capillary what? Refill. Capillary refill time. Mm-hmm. Remember earlier we talked about generally in your fingers you have capillaries. Yes. And that's little. That's your smallest types of vessels is your capillaries. Right. And they're all, they run all throughout your body. And on your fingers, you can kind of look at your finger and um, look at your nails of your fingers. Okay. And you push down and let off. And your fingers should turn a color and then immediately turn back. That's right. Okay. That's called capillary refill. And you see how, how quick it turns back. It turn, should turn back fairly quick. Yeah, like within a second. Exactly. That's what you want. And you check that also because 
that will help you determine if there's blood still flowing uh, below that breakage of, there again of the arm since we're using the forearm. So you check the pulse, you check the capillary refill, say they have the pulse, mm -hmm. so they have you know pretty good capillary refill, that's you know a second or so. It's not you know six, seven, eight seconds, it's kind of immediate. And the next thing you want to do is check for sensation. Hey, can you feel me touching your hand down here? Yeah, okay, that's a good thing. Okay, what does that mean? If, if they can feel it, that means there's blood flow going? There's blood flow and they haven't really damaged any nerves or anything. Okay. So that's, that's a good thing. That's the three things you want to check for really before you start the splint. And it, it kind of sounds drawn out, but once you do it a few times, it just kind of comes second nature and you're going to say, okay, I've checked the pulse. They have a good pulse, capillary refill, good, and they can, you know, I can feel it. That's a good thing. Pulse, capillary refill, and feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sensation. Okay. okay, sensation. And then you can splint that extremity. You know, splint, okay. immobilize it, there again, by whatever means you have available. And once you immobilize that extremity, after you're done, you do the exact same thing. The, check the pulse, the capillary refill, and the sensation. Again, there again, checking to make sure that you still have those because if you had them before you splinted the extremity and now you don't have them after you've done it, ah, okay. you might need to either loosen your extremity up or maybe you've turned it or something the wrong, just a slot, sometimes the slightest little turn can affect if you have blood flow or not. So. Yeah, you might have caused a problem by uh, splinting it. Correct. Like I said, it kind of sounds a little drawn out and maybe a little bit of in-depth for some people, but it, it don't take but just a few minutes to to learn it, and once you learn it, it you can do it in you know, 10 seconds. Well, and I would imagine, I'd like to get your opinion on something else, I would imagine, you know, we talked a little bit about this in the first podcast, just going to a simple first aid course, they make you practice these steps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's so, correct. just like anything else, practice makes perfect. Practice and get your training. Yeah. And that's and that goes for the same thing if, if you broke, say, your, your leg. The same principles apply. Um, you just you check your pulse in the top of your foot, um, which is kind of hard to do. Um, I don't know the, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's something like one-third of the population doesn't have a, a pedal pulse or a pulse in their foot. Really? Some, some, yeah, some odd number like that, which it makes sense because it, it can get hard to find. It's just a faint pulse. So just because you don't have a pulse down there, or you can't feel a pulse down there, doesn't mean that there's not one there at all. It's just okay. Yeah, I said I don't remember the exact you know number, so I hope nobody quotes me on that. But <laughs> I don't think anybody will beat you up too bad over it. Yeah, it's just an odd number that it was one of those things like wow, really? So, but the same principles apply when you immobilize your, like your leg or something like that. You want to check for a pulse, either on the top of your foot, or sometimes you can feel one right uh, behind your ankle, around um, mm -hmm. your uh, Achilles uh, heel there, tendon there. Okay. Sometimes you can feel a pulse there. And then especially check for sensation. Um, hey, can you feel me touching your, your toes or, or whatever? And then you'd immobilize that extremity as well. So, like for example, rubbing the bottom of their feet and asking if they can feel that, right? Exactly. Okay. And, and generally, with with leg wounds, what you want to do is is immobilize both legs. Just go ahead and immobilize both legs. Okay. Because that way, they don't stand a chance on injuring themselves even more. Especially if you're out in the woods, you know. Most people aren't going to be able to hobble along on a broken leg. I mean, they may have one good leg, but it's still hobbling along. Even mm -hmm. if you've immobilized it, it's still going to be pretty painful. So go ahead and immobilize both legs, both extremities, and then either wait for somebody to get there, medical help to get there, or if you're out in the, out in the woods or something like that, send somebody for help, or worst-case scenario, you'd have to build you a stretcher or some way of taking that person um, to medical help. Boy, that's a whole other subject, huh? Improvising yeah, and building a stretcher. Yeah. That gets into, uh, like, your wilderness uh, 
first aid and, and stuff like that. Which maybe that's a subject for another podcast. Yeah, it could be. Definitely. Okay. Well, good. Um, something I want to ask you, Chris, before we run out of time. And uh, this is really good information, by the way, everything you've you've shared so far. You know, anybody who's been listening to my show long enough, you know that I'm a shooter. I like to, I'm a sport shooter, I'm a defensive shooter. And so I always worry about things like gunshot wounds. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the notes I made to myself before we set up this interview. Uh, I got a note right here. Ask Chris about gunshot wounds. How do you, how do you recommend treating those? A lot of that's going to depend on where the wound is because, of course, if it's a fatal wound, there's nothing you're going to be able to do. No, but what if they're shot in a, in a non-fatal area? Non-fatal area, there again, bleeding is going to be your main concern. Control that bleeding. Yeah, with the same methods we talked about earlier, right? Correct. Okay. So if you get shot in the arm, you know, you're going to control that bleeding. Um, you might have an entrance and an exit wound. Um, so you That's need to check correct. that. That's correct. Some, some bullets will go right through. Others will stay in the body and do a lot of damage. But just because they go right through doesn't mean they haven't done internal damage. But anyway, you want to control the bleeding, apply some type of dressing over that wound, uh, and then check for an exit wound. If they have an exit wound, apply a dressing to that wound as well. Okay. And, of course, get them to medical attention quickly. And I would imagine, you know, there's also a really good chance that the bullet's probably going to break a bone, too. Exactly. And so true. then the same first aid techniques that applies to breaks comes into play. Correct. Okay. And then you, you just kind of have to combine everything together. Um, control your bleeding, bandage the wound, and then you're going to have to immobilize that extremity and splint that extremity. Okay. That's a good, that's, that's a good, thanks for explaining that. I was, I was wondering about that. Sure. Okay. Um, that's that's pretty much all the questions that, that, that I had, but is there anything else that you want to add? I, one thing that kind of popped into my mind just in the last couple of seconds is there might be some people wondering, where do I start in terms of, you know, maybe I'm on a budget, I only have a, a, a you know limited amount of money to spend, but I want to build three or four homemade first aid kits. Well, there's, there's several... Uh, different first aid kits on the market, uh, commercially available. Um, yeah, what do you think of the store-bought ones, by the way? Some of them are pretty good. And then they're also, and then there's a lot of them that are also cheaply made, too. So what I do, personally, is go to your drugstore uh, or Walmart uh, or dollar store. If you have a dollar store, a lot of times they carry bandages that are a dollar or less or cheap. Oh, yeah. I love the dollar store. Me, too. And just get... Go to the first aid section and just buy a bunch of stuff, especially if you want to buy or you want to build several different kits. Just go and buy your bandages and, and tape and, and neosporin and, and peroxide, stuff like that. They'll have all that stuff there. Yes, usually, yes. You're usually going to spend less money buying it that way than you would buying a commercially made one. But there are some excellent commercially made ones out there, like Adventure Medical Kits makes them really nice kits, anything from something with a small pocket kit to a, a very elaborate, comprehensive type backcountry kit. Mm -hmm. So it just depends on your budget and and whatnot. I, I like to do it myself because I, I can personalize it and I know what's in my own kit. Yeah, and especially if you pack it in one of those Ziploc bags, you can see through them so it's easy to see what's in there. Exactly. Very good, very good. Um, this is actually, especially the uh, the wound treatment that you just discussed, the breaks and the and the sprains and everything, and the gunshot wounds and so forth. I, I like that. Okay. Um, anything else you want to throw in? Uh, since we talked about wound management, we'll talk just real briefly on signs of infection. Oh okay. yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, just your general wound, you you bandage it. There's no need, or you feel that there's no need to go to the hospital or whatever. You you know, taking care of the wound, and it's going to heal fine. Right. You want to watch for signs of infection. That could be uh, redness around that, that wound or swelling around that wound or um, red streaks uh, coming off of that wound uh, or pain, severe pain coming from that wound. 
and then it gets to the point to where if you have a fever and stuff like that, then you pretty much got an infection and you need to go to the, the doctor at that point. Mm-hmm. So just generally watch for the swelling and the redness or any type of red streaks kind of coming off of that wound. And that's your general signs of infection. Yeah, yeah, and I'm glad because, you know, I'm glad you brought up infections. That's, uh, I didn't think about that. So other than that, uh, right off, I can't think of really anything else to really throw out there right now. So. You've done a good job. This is this is great. This is an excellent part two, and uh, especially the part on dealing with breaks and sprains and bleeding and so forth. That's something, these are the basics. These are the basics that we need to know. Exactly. You know, especially those of us that like to spend a lot of time outdoors like me, um, you know, that's where a lot of things can happen. But even in the home, it's amazing how many people are not uh, very well trained for simple in-home first aid. Exactly. Oh, you know, I just thought of something, Chris, uh, before I let you go. What, what, what kind of basics do you suggest we teach our kids? Anything that you would teach an adult, I would say teach a kid. Just basic wound management. What am I, how am I going to stop this bleeding? Um, I'm going to you know, put a Band-Aid on it. It could be need to get... Start, there again, start with the basics with them as well. Um, like I've, I said in a previous you know, video I'm, or a previous podcast, I'm a big advocate of teaching them anything that you can learn. If an adult can learn it, a child can learn it as well. You know, maybe well, that's a good point. It. You may not go into as much in depth as far as you, you got to check this pulse or, or, or check for a heartbeat or whatever, whatever. But you can teach them the basics, and the basics start with A, B, C: airway, breathing, and circulation. If you don't have those three, then generally you're dead. Ah, you airway, a, breathing, and circulation. Okay. You have to have a patent airway. Somebody has to be awake. They might not be awake, but they have to have a patent airway. They have to be able to breathe. And they have to have proper circulation. And circulation, if they're bleeding out everywhere, then their circulation is going to be poor. So you need to stop that bleeding. So if you just remember those basics, and the basics, everything builds upon the basics. Building upon the basics, that's what it's all about anyway. And I, I teach my kids whenever we're out, I'm always, uh, I try to teach them something. Um, it may just be something real simple. I always just try to teach them something. And do you find they pick up on things as easily as adults do? I find it easier a lot of really? times. Really? Okay. Yeah. They're more attentive. They pick it up more and, and quicker. And you mean sometimes more. they're not as narrow-minded as we are? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. It, it's something I just thought of, and I'll bring it up real quick. Uh, okay. Poisonings and overdoses. Um, oh, National take Poison your time. Control Center. And give you the number to the National Poison Control Hotline. It will ring to the closest poison control in your area. And poison control is the, one of the best resources you can have, especially if you have children in the house. Excellent. That number is 1-800-222-1222. 1-800-222-1222. Correct. That needs to be all over the house on all refrigerators and cabinet doors and everything. Exactly. Poison control is your friend. I'm here to tell you um, because there's so many different things. You know, it used to be if somebody ingested something, I'll just make them vomit, you know, or just give them milk. Well, call poison control first. They're the experts. It just takes a couple of minute phone call. And if you end up going to the hospital, they will relay all that information that they told you to do. They will fax that information to the doctor at the hospital so he already knows that you're coming and what they told you to do. Excellent. I to hit on that because I've had to call them several times for my kids as well as, you know, being out in the field. We, that's one of the first things, you know, we call for people that ingest stuff is poison control. Well, let me add something to that. I would suggest everybody listening to this podcast, as soon as it's over with, uh, program that into the speed dial on your cell phones. Yeah, I, it's in mine. Yeah, put that in your favorites or your speed dial or wherever you can easily access it. I agree. Excellent. Thanks for bringing that up. I, I would have forgot that. I'm glad you brought that up. Sure. Chris, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for coming on this episode and doing the part two. I know your time is valuable, and I appreciate it. And this was this was really, really good. Well, thanks for having me, Bob, and hopefully we'll do it again. Yeah, and thanks for all your participation on the forum. This is Ghost Rider from the forum, everybody, Chris Harper. And uh, appreciate your time. All right. Thanks, Bob. All right. Thanks. thanks. You take care. All right. Mm -hmm. Bye. 
Wow, folks, I hope you got as much out of that as I did. Very, very informative, concise. I like the way Chris lays everything out. I like the way he speaks in a concise manner. I like the way he speaks in a very matter-of-fact manner. And I hope you took some good notes. You might have to play this podcast uh, over a couple of times. Uh, I was taking copious notes while he was writing, but I will be probably listening to this three or four times. You need to know how to take care of yourself if you're hurt, your family members if you're hurt, the people in your party if you're on some kind of an outdoor excursion. This is part of survival. So, with that said, thank you for listening to episode 69 of today's Survival Show. My name is Bob Main. That was Chris Harper, ghostwriter from our forum. We hope that you have learned some practical ideas on how to live a more secure life, how to strengthen your resolve, how to do what you can with what you have wherever you are. And folks, if you feel like you've benefited from this show, if this show has changed your life in some way, if the culmination of all the podcasts, the forum, the chat room, and the different vehicles that we have as part of this whole suite of products, if this helps you live a more secure life, uh, this is not a full-time business of mine, folks. This show lives only on uh, exists only on donations from members like you. Been having some people help us out, and if you're interested in supporting the show, that's fine. That's all I'll say about that. There is a donate button if you would like to uh, help support the show in that manner. Otherwise, just by you listening every day and uh, by you getting on the forum every day, that's also supporting the show too and building an excellent community. Thank you very much, folks. I hope that you've enjoyed this, and I'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. Got a shotgun, a rifle, and a four-wheel drive, and a country boy can survive. Country folks can survive.